Welcome back, ladies and gents, to Opera Omnia, Season 3, Episode Number 5. I'm your host, Duncan McLeish, and joining me on Opera Omnia for the entire season, because that's how we do things over here. We take an entire season to bask in the glory of a director's, that's one director's, body of work. They're Opera Omnia, if you will. Joining me on Season 3 to discuss David Fincher is the phenomenal Bo Ransdell. How are you doing, sir? Oh, phenomenally. As it happens, what what an irony! Uh, I'm great and am very excited to be here. I I can't tell you uh, how much I enjoy doing these shows with you because not only do I genuinely enjoy the films of David Fincher for the most part, um, you know you're one of my favorite people to talk about movies with, and talking about great movies with you is a great time. Yeah. Uh, and and if the listeners enjoy it, well, that's good too, it's I a guess. Bonus, maybe a benefit. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm looking forward to this one because, as we set up last month, this is almost the inverse of last month's episode in that I was coming in all kind of hot and heavy on Fight Club and you were going into that before your rewatch, kind of like, eh. And now we've flipped it around, flipped it and reversed it, you know, as Missy Elliott would say. Um, uh-huh. And we've come to a movie which... I remember it coming out, I remember seeing it and remember being like, huh, which is Panic Room. And uh, in conversations with you, most recently anyway, you've been like, oh no, it's a good movie, Duncan. Yeah, and, I think my exact quote was, Panic Room, son. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I, sat, I, I sat and watched it a week ago. I actually watched it again last night. Um, uh, I watched it this morning again. I watched it a few weeks ago <laughs> and then watched it again this morning before the show. And again, was like, panic room, son. <laughs> we will see if I share that son at the end or if I'm just like, panic room, Bo. Um, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll find out how that lands. Um, that should be our new review system. Is it either you put a son on the end of it yeah. or it's just the name of the movie. Just the name of the movie. We'll, we'll right, see. Like, we'll find out. <laughs> yeah. So it'd be like, you know, Alien 3. Seven, son. <laughs> It's like what I'm, what I'm looking forward to is we are not that I dismiss this episode by any stretch of the imagination, but next month we talk Zodiac, which oh, I mean, man. like all roads have been leading to that conversation because I know for a fact it's a movie both me and you genuinely fucking adore. Yeah, I kind of like as grim as that movie is. I wish I could just live in it. Yeah, and we're gonna get there, and we're gonna get the opportunity to spend a bit of time. That I get a feeling that episode might run long as well. I just get, I, I've got this. Yeah. yeah, I've got this sneaky suspicion it's gonna run long. Um, but yeah, we. The interesting thing is, in the time that we've been doing this, once again, I don't want to, although all the internet would appear to assume that if I put my name to a project and start talking about a director or a movie, um, all of a sudden they become headline news. Most recently, mm-hmm. myself and yourself did uh, Duncan and Bo Come Correct on Duran Duran, who have now That's just right. announced that they are bringing their new single out. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, like, I, I, did, um, I did a mini retro on Cronenberg for Movie Club for Podcasts Under the Stairs, which finished with Eastern Promises, a movie that I was saying, you know, this is a great movie, it's just a shame it's not had like a really good Blu-ray release. And then within a week and a half of me releasing that episode, Kino Lorder announced that they were releasing Eastern Promises on Blu-ray. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just going to say I'm not in cahoots with anyone but since we've started doing this Fincher has been all over the place like in terms of press yeah. and comments specifically of the success of Mank but 
He signed a massive deal with um, Netflix. They're now back in negotiations about a Mindhunter season three, which will be covered on Duncan and Bolcom, correct? Because damn right, we love that show. Um, but yeah, it's, it's everything's kind of coming up. Fincher at the moment, which is exciting for me because we're getting to experience those movies one at a time, spend a bit of time really getting into them, and if this guy is, you know, now setting up the next five, six years of his work, that just makes me, like, incredibly excited because even when he's releasing a movie like The Game, which, you know, is not my favourite Fincher by any stretch of the imagination, sitting down and watching it again, I can still marvel in the craft, which I think is one of Fincher's like strongest suits out of a lot of kind of modern auteur directors is his eye for detail is kinda insane. Um and that's gonna be a big talking point when we come on to talk about this movie. I'd forgotten oh, no how, kidding. how active the camera work is. Um and precise. Yes. It is like this thing is like a Swiss watch. Yes. It's so so precise. So yeah, we're, we are going to get to that after the first break. But I thought what we might do is, because we did that with Fight Club as well, is just kind of recap like our initial experiences with Panic Room. Um, I, I kind of want to start us off, because I remember when this movie came out. Like th- This, once again, is distinct memory of going to the cinema to see Panic Room. And it's weird, I'd forgotten the cast mostly of this one I'd completely forgotten that Kirsten Stewart who's young uh, is is in this movie for some reason I had it in my head even though she does kind of dress quite boyish tomboyish in the movie I thought it was a son that Jodie Foster had but I remember it was to me the movie was Jodie Foster Forrest Whitaker and David Fincher was directing it and that is all you need to know Um, so much so that I'd forgotten Jared Leto was in it (laughs) like completely he's very funny I think he's he's great in it he really is Um, and yeah the other bits and bobs like we'll get to Raul um, I dare seriously talk about <laughs> Who the this. fuck is Raul? <laughs> yeah, kind of, who the fuck is Raul? Who, like, see when he f- we finally have the balaclava removed from him, kind of looks like an older version of you. <laughs> a little bit. You son of a bitch. It, like, if, if me and Clint Howard had a baby. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> it would be Dwight Yoakam in this movie. Yes, the Brundlefly, the Brundlefly Raul. Um, it, it's kinda, it, 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 <laughs> That's Raul. Yeah, who the I, fuck is Raul? Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we're, 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 we're going to get to it, but I remember watching it and what's really interesting is I genuinely think I've conflated this movie in another movie, um, and I can't remember what the other movie's name is, but I remember it involving lots of passageways in a house, um, and like a kid crawling from passageway to passageway to different rooms, uh, and whatnot, and I... I think the movie you're looking for is the podcast under the stairs, or the the people under the stairs. Sorry, <laughs> it's, it's not that movie, but um, not right. that movie. But I, I had a distinct memory that, and it, like, it clearly was removed very fast. That we we only spent a bit of time in the panic room, and the panic room was a bit of a misnomer, and that the house had a panic room, and yes, that's where the safe was, but we didn't spend a huge amount of time in there, and that couldn't have been any. right that's the whole movie yeah Yeah, the whole movie's the panic room um so like very very quickly on the rewatch which like i say we'll get to after the first break um i was like all right this is mm, some of this is not like uh some of this feels a bit more fresh to me now because I, i can't remember this necessarily happening but i remember it coming out remember watching it and thinking right 
Um, maybe maybe we're trying to pivot away from the kind of more teen angsty juvenile stuff that was Fight Club, which I really enjoyed. And we're going for a more serious movie, Allah the Game. That's maybe what was in the back of my head when I watched it. And I remember enjoying... I, I will watch Jodie Foster in absolutely fucking anything. I will sure. watch Forrest Whitaker in absolutely fucking anything. And I'll watch anything that David Fincher directs. So my opinion of it in that time period from watching it the first time, where, like I say, I was relatively nonplussed about it. It was always... I mean, it's a Fincher movie that if it was on the TV, I would watch. But I'm not going to go out my way to sit down on a Saturday night and go, you know what? fucking panic room son you know I'm, I'm not gonna do that um what about yourself was this uh kind of when the movie first came out or was this a couple of years down the line and then you caught up to it or what's your story with panic room I, it was a home video thing which is a real bummer i would love to see this movie on a big screen mm. um and i never did uh but uh yeah i you know fight club as we discussed didn't really hit me the way that it hit a lot of people and so i wasn't in a rush to see the next venture movie there was a lot of question in my mind of like maybe seven was kind of the high water mark <laughs> yeah. not knowing the dizzying highs that were to come mm-hmm. um but i yeah i wasn't totally sold on venture at that point because you know I, again at this point there are a couple of great movies but there's also some eh, you know the game and alien three and that yeah. kind of thing yeah so uh when i caught up to this on a home video finally uh it was a real panic room son like just from <laughs> jump <laughs> i was like man i love uh yeah like we talked about i love the precision of this it's a very locked room one set kind of film and i respond to that mm-hmm. uh, i like a contained story and especially if you can get it right it's a tough formula to get right because if you're only dealing with a, a confined space like this house which is you know 98 percent of the movie yeah then you have to make sure that the inner workings of that are all real entertaining and interesting and all that because mm-hmm. a movie like this can get real boring real fast yeah like what what, what kind of reminded me of is I, I really like the movie phone booth don't know if you've ever seen phone booth yeah, yep. yeah, that's a good example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's kind of a fun way to deal with that premise. Yes, yeah, yeah, like because Phone Booth, in principle, should be a boring as fuck movie, right? Like, really should be. It's a guy trapped in a phone booth talking to someone that he never sees the face of, who is, you know, essentially creating a diversion for something else that he's trying to do by torturing this guy by making him publicly admit. <laughs> to all his swindles and his, you know, his affairs and all the rest. On paper, that shouldn't have the legs that it does, but what that movie does really, really well is it knows exactly the point where the audience might start to be like, I think I've seen, and then it injects a new scenario or a new character or something else into the equation. So much so that it keeps the story going at a really good pace right to the end um even though the end of that movie has a you know like uh, to an extent the same as kind of panic room but once again we're gonna get to one of these endings is like well that's all convenient um but yeah it has to be if you know what i mean otherwise it's that's the problem with these movies right is that they're 
fucking giving. Yes. And if you get an element wrong, it'll fuck up the whole thing. Oh god, you can't watch it again. That's the thing. Yeah. Like if you don't, uh, we talk about sticking the landing. The landing in these movies can never really be the only other one I can think of that inverts the landing, so to speak. Um, into something that leaves the audience genuinely fucking shook would be something along the lines of like the original The Vanishing. Um, oh, yeah. Or sure. Buried, which is, I, I mean, that's the Ryan Reynolds movie, which, I mean, that is a movie that's one set, it's all done through kind of walkie talkie all the way through it, and it leaves you fucking cold at the end. But because there's plenty of plenty of like new voices being injected uh, other scenarios we're going to track you down we're going to find out where you are we're going to save the day we think we found you know all those things keep the audience invested that you're right if you fuck up one of those elements that's that's the death it's the, that's the death nail yeah. to your to your movie in terms of rewatchability um, yeah it's just a house of cards yes. yeah of a, of a like the premise alone or the that that sort of trope of like we are going to have all the action take place right here mm -hmm. and you are you're setting yourself a near impossible task already yes and so the few films that actually pull it off i think are really kind of special because it is it's one of those degree of difficulty dives where yes. you're like this may not be the flashiest but it's so hard for it not to look flashy yeah I, I, i'm with you the only other like the only other genre i can really think of out with that that has a similar sort of a rod across the bear um it's kind of like a good murder mystery i think that's why it, yes, people yes. were like blown away when knives out came out because knives out does it remarkably well and makes it look very easy to the point where like at the end of that movie you kind of think i can make a murder mystery and you can't like that's <laughs> no right, I, it's so funny you said that because i was when i was re-watching panic room this morning i was actually thinking about knives out mm. partially because of you know the news is starting to come out about the sequel which yeah, oh, i'm real yes. excited mm -hmm. about but also because of that thing of like oh yeah the construction of that is actually not a typical mystery movie construction because yeah. you know the answer well before anybody else in the movie does yes and it inverts your expectation of the film mm-hmm uh, and that's what makes it so unique and, and, and kind of special. Whereas Panic Room doesn't even do that. No. It's just like, here it is laid out on on uh, uh, like a patient etherized upon a table, as T.S. <laughs> Eliot once said. Um, just out there for all the world to see. And um, yeah, it's uh, again, it, it it's it's calling your shot you know it's pointing to the stands <laughs> and and saying i'm about to do a single set story mm -hmm. and not fuck it up yeah yeah and, and you've got to you've got that whether you like or loathe david fincher i always come down to the, you kind of have to respect the guy and yeah and he prior to uh him making this movie um after fight club he had said like, hey, let's. I want to do a more stripped down thing. I want to do something that's a little more basic, a little mm -hmm. back to filmmaking roots, kind of a rear window sort of vibe. Yes. For sure. Yes. There's like, there's without Hitchcock, a movie like this doesn't exist. Oh, yeah. Hitchcock is just drips all <laughs> over this movie. There is no doubt about it. Which, um, which is like tickles me because uh, today um, I've just I've just finished watching it. It's a rewatch. I hadn't seen it in a few years, but I uh, watched Obsession from Brian De Palma from 1976. I, yeah. Have you have you seen Obsession before? I, I have not. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so, like, Obsession is basically his... 
his take one of like his takes on something like Vertigo um, and it is once again like you remember bits and then you go back and watch it that movie is surprisingly fucked up like genuinely like the reveal I can't even tell you what the reveal is but when you finally get a chance to watch that me and you will compare notes I, I guarantee that we will have the same movie on our notes that without obsession this movie does not exist right oh okay I like yeah I'll, I'll give it a watch I, i've got a lot of the palma uh, blind spots and in fact as soon as you said his name it's like oh you know what panic room is more de palma than hitchcock it, it does have in, like, in yeah. a weird way it, it does have that it kind of it's the it's weird it's the kind of like six degrees of separation to, to an extent like there's a lot of filmmakers who you know, you can see their their, their kind of primary influence is like a De Palma without understanding that De Palma's primary influence is Hitchcock. So it's yeah. kind of like you're doing Hitchcock without intentionally. I, I always find that amusing but, when like filmmakers talk about like they they talk about how they approach something, and then a critic goes, "Well, this Hitchcockian thriller," and the director's like, "No, no, no, it's, it's not Hitchcock. <laughs> it's not without understanding that like Hitchcock kind of set the template out for." These are the three or four different kinds of thrillers you can make. Yeah. And, you know, regardless of what thriller you make, it's going to kind of fall into one of these buckets. Sorry, guys. <laughs> be prepared but I to think be compared Palma, to me. Yeah, I think De Palma has a little grindhouse edge to it. He always does. And that's what yeah, I kind of love I, about it. Right. And I think that's what Panic Room borrows from yes. De Palma. Is there are some moments they're like, ugh, all right. Well, I guess, yeah, that's well, kind of gnarly. Yeah. And it's also got that, um, once again, like, like Hitchcock is playful with camera position, but De Palma is a maestro with camera yeah. placement. So, and I think he, like Fincher, you can see it. Like I said before, in this movie in particular, he is he is channeling some of that De Palma on the screen because the camera is everywhere, and where he yeah. can't get it, he's already very cleverly, seamlessly incorporating uh, digital camera effects, computer-generated camera effects to do things which watching this movie in 2021 in high definition you cannot i know it's computer generated but i cannot see the seams which that was the thing that kind of floored me because i'm like that well this is clearly computer generated because there's no camera small enough to fit through that small yeah, handle can't go through the right yeah the like mug I, handle and stuff and yeah, like, like, I, 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 obviously I, that's not right <laughs> yeah but you can't tell and um it's held up very 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 well and he's still doing that like, we're going to talk about it when it comes to zodiac like all those like the the the, the scenes of san francisco the, the the you know the the kind of cityscapes and all the rest is all digital and you like your brain is so tricked and watching it that you just fucking forget because it's so seamless and he's he's already kind of carving that craft um here as well but yeah i'd, I'd highly recommend I, it's, it's going to be the movie i'm going to talk about the next time we do a duncan and bow come correct as in a, a movie that you revisited or a movie that you watched that you like obsession for me still really kind of holds up and it's got like 1976 john lithgow uh with a mustache and a southern gentleman's accent i mean oh my god oh you gotta okay. watch it you got yeah <laughs> you got well you know like i said i've been filling in some gaps i just watched blowout not that oh. long ago which of course blew my socks off because oh. it's blowout and it's mm -hmm. amazing and so yeah i'm i'm definitely on my de palma kick yeah. uh, of late um so yeah and but and maybe because i have been kind of uh, thinking of De Palma recently, St something like Panic Room is really 
you know, that that sort of taut yes. uh, camera driven thriller mm-hmm. is it's just a good time for me, man. I have such a good time uh, with, with these kinds of movies. Well, I think when done right, yeah. like I said, yeah. either, it's it, they're so hard to pull off. It's it, it's a real something when uh, a real gem comes along. I agree. I agree 100 percent. We are going to find out, though. Um, if I agree in terms of this movie review, I'm just trying to build like some sort of tension. If not, I will convince you, sir. <laughs> There's only one way we will find out that, and that is to get to the review, but there is an obstacle block, and I was getting to that review, and that's a trailer. So we're going to take a short break just now. You're going to hear the trailer for Panic Room when we return the fifth movie in the Fincher filmography. That's a lot of effies um, <laughs> right there. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, we're going to be right back to discuss it right after this. Two hundred square feet, four floors. Hardwood floors throughout, as many as six working fireplaces. Oh my God, it's huge. Yes, I don't know if you have living help. No, 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 no. It's just the two of us. Huh? That's strange. What? Is this room smaller than it should be? You're the first person to notice. No one from our office had the slightest idea. It's called a panic room. What? It's a safe room. Castle keep in medieval times. Ford concrete walls, buried phone line not connected to the house's main line. They have your own ventilation system and a bank of surveillance monitors that covers nearly every corner of the house. What's to keep someone from prying open the door? Steel. Very thick steel. My room. Definitely my room. welcome back ladies and gents <laughs> still laughing uh, we are discussing Panic Room you just heard the trailer for it this one came out in 2002 this movie is almost 20 years old um, oh, the vote I know <laughs> the the writer of this one is David Kiop or Coep or Kep I think is Kep, uh, David you. Kep weird surnames uh, obviously directed by David Fincher great cast here um, you have Jodie Foster Kirsten Stewart in a very young role we have Forrest Whitaker Dwight Yoakam 
Jared Leto. I'm sorry, I've laughed just because not like. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you better call a ambulance or a first best white line ever. Uh, we've got Patrick Balshaw, <laughs> Balshaw, um, and Magnuson. Um, this one made me smile a little bit more than we probably should have. Ian Buchanan is in this um, as the kind of the, the kind of agent sort of what realtor is. Yeah, the real estate agent kind of showing him around at the very beginning. Oh, and it has 4,300 square feet. Well, the reason that I, I was laughing a lot about this is, as you well know, Bo, I'm currently going through Twin Peaks with my peeps, and uh, uh, we've just started season two, and Dick Tremaine is a character, um, as you will remember, that knocks up Lucy. Uh, and he's like, oh, Lucy, I work in the, the, the you know, the menswear department of Holland's. And, <laughs> yeah, like, and I was seeing him here, and I was like, oh, man, it's the same fucking character. It's the same character except he's selling houses. Um, that, is, that is literally it. So that, that made me smile. There's some other folk in here. We're not going to spend too much time. It's probably seeing Paul Schulz, who plays the, the main kind of police officer, is, you know, I mean... He's in a it's lot a of shit. It's a good scene. Yeah, it's yeah. a great scene, but he's in everything. I think he plays police officer or paramedic in everything that he does. Uh, and one more name worthy of note, not that you ever get to see her, but um, the woman who answers the phone, that is Stephen's girlfriend, the new bitch girlfriend, is voiced by Nicole Kidman. So She was originally slated to be the lead. Yes. And... Sure. Uh, in had suffered a hairline fracture on Moulin Rouge, which revealed itself as a nagging injury on the set of this mm-hmm. and had to be quickly replaced by Jodie Foster. I mean, I'm going to be honest. If you're David Fincher and you're like, oh, we've just lost Nicole Kidman, who was hot shit back then. And to be honest, still is kind of hot shit right now. Yeah, amazing performer. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, you're still, lucky to have her. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, we can give you. Oscar-winning Jodie Foster as your replacement. You're doing all right. <laughs> yeah. How would you like a Clary Starling? <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> oh my God. Tell, tell me what you see, Panic Room. Oh, like that's you've got. I've got, you t- I've got to try and always get that voice out of my head whenever I see her act. Like I really genuinely do. Um, oh, it was maybe some- <laughs> you'd like to take a look at this file, Panic Room, and you tell me what you see. One of my favourite things in this uh, in this movie as well is when our daughter's trying to get her to get aggressive on the on the intercom, oh, and so she's like, funny. she's like, see, fuck, and she's like, fuck, and she's like, no, see, see, get the fuck out of my house. Like, oh yeah, all right, get the fuck out of my house. Yeah, <laughs> like, come on, mom. Yeah, she there, there's a little moment in, that she has early on after like she and and Kirsten Stewart move into the house. Yeah, and it's when she's putting her in bed and she says. You know, I love you so much it's disgusting. Yeah. And 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 the response is, yeah, tell me about it. Yeah. And it's such a nice little moment that it, it like it tells you everything you need to know about the characters and all that. And and it's such a like to our larger point, it's a great moment for Jodie Foster to just reveal everything about her character in that moment and how much she really does love her I, this is the th- this is the, this is my first talking point for this so um, the synopsis anyway for it is a divorced woman and her diabetic daughter take refu- refuge in a newly purchased house uh, which has a safe room uh, the, you know they're in the safe room when three men break in searching for a missing fortune right we're going to park that to the side because that is that is all you need to know about panic room really is like yeah. she's divorced She's got her kid. 
They've moved into this house. This house was owned by a very rich man. Um, and he had a panic room because he was very paranoid. And some guys try to break in because they're convinced that the old man's left money in there. We're going to parse this out as to how they know that as the story goes along. Because I think that's handled really well in the storytelling. Um, but ultimately this is, they're in the panic room. Bad guys want to get in. That's, that's literally the, yeah. that's the setup. My overriding kind of feeling five minutes into this movie is see the, the, the way they craft exposition of just complete background on the characters in the first five minutes is a fucking masterclass. Like mm-hmm. you get you get in five minutes of this movie, you get all the details. Like and but you don't feel like it's people having silly conversations amongst themselves. You just get all the details and it makes sense. We know that Jodie Foster was married to a very wealthy um kind of the pharmacist you know the guy that's in pharmaceuticals yeah he's in pharmaceutical uh, industry and yep. yeah she's splitting up she's getting half yeah she's getting half she's you know this is this is how she can afford this very nice townhouse um the daughter's going to live with her the you know the ex has a new younger uh, girlfriend and he's moved in with her they're not that far apart in terms of where yeah, they live just uh, just across the the park in new york so yeah, yeah they're like the, there's a whole thing about hey you know he's going to be able to take me to school and yeah. we're going to still raise our child together and that kind of thing very you know forward-thinking kind of ideas but also extremely emotionally messy yeah incredible and then on top of that the house that they're looking at was owned by a very wealthy man um who died and the kids are fighting over the will including some missing inheritance that they don't know where it is this is all like it's mentioned but it's not mentioned in a way where we're winking at the audience this is going to be important later on it's just matter of fact conversations with the realtor basically talking about well this is why he's got his panic room this is a messy situation i need rid of this house (laughs) like like we need to get this house off my hands and so that this other bit can be taken care of um and yeah we very quickly realized that you know Jodie Foster, she's very independent, she's going back to school to study, and her kid's got diabetes, and you get that within the first 10 minutes. Plus, to increase the degree of difficulty, Mm -hmm. at the same time you're getting all the emotional backstory of the movie you need, you are also getting the layout of the house. Totally. We we get walked through this house in a very clever way. Mm-hmm. And the way that makes sense, like how a realtor would show you a house is how you need to, like at no point was I like, well, this doesn't make, how are they on this, what floor, you know, it just, it, it makes sense. And uh, it's, it's a very, very, very smart way of doing things to the point where like five, ten minutes into this movie, I was like, right, I'm, I'm good to go, I'm good to go. And you know what's great about this movie is the movie at that point says, let's get going then and you know yeah our, our thieves break into this house before 15 minutes into the movie and the movie's an hour and 50 long so yeah. once again no like three weeks later and they've acclimated to the property or whatever like the next clip we have is them their stuff's in the house they're having takeaway dinner um and and kind of recovering from it uh you know like the the, the move in once again bit bit of exposition but nothing too forceful and then you know our characters are in bed after Jodie Foster has a cry in the bath uh, with a glass of red wine we've all been there Bo um, I don't know why I singled you out with that one uh, but 
Yeah, well, I, I do enjoy a, a nice Argentinian red. Yeah, in the bath? Um, not <laughs> terribly. Although I do cry in the bath a lot, so That's I have good. that in common <laughs> with Jodie Foster's character in this movie. <laughs> just like stiff upper lip and then yeah. just blubbering two seconds later. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, and then she goes to bed. The house, the, the whole house is in their bed, and then we get. What I can only be described as camera work that makes my dick hard. Um, like, and <laughs> it is so like it is that tenebrae outside it's the so house tenebrae. shot from within. It's so, so fucking tenebrae. It's, it's a reverse tenebrae, Duncan, um, where you're inside the house, and mm-hmm. yeah, and you see these dumbass burglars show up. Yep. Um, and I, I love the fact that all these characters are so incredibly human, except for Raul. Yeah, but. <laughs> He was just a monster. But, like, you see Forrest Whitaker, like, climbing the the ladder outside in silhouette and stuff. And it's kind of creepy, but fascinating. It's so good. And it's right outside. Because you you mentioned Tenebrae. The the reason a lot of people, I think, get confused about, out with logistically, why that camera work in Tenebrae is is so... Why why people rave about it so much. Uh, One, it hadn't really been done like that at that time two our gentle story boarded it out within an inch of its life and three not only does it completely marry up with the entire duration of the theme of the movie like the theme song of the movie meticulously but every time the camera moves around to a different part where we have a window we can see the killer moving around and that's what's it's it's active it's not just a look look at this fancy camera movement it's all you know, choreographed within an inch of its life and this is exactly the same the camera starts at ground level at the front door uh, with our burglars trying to get in then pans zooms right through the kitchen with that shot which is partially digital partially you know just proper handheld camera uh, well not handheld it'll be on, on, like on a uh, like a, a, a like on, camera a, on a dolly yeah, yeah. Um, to the back window, like you see, can't get in those those back doors. So then we see the you know the ladders come down. He's going up, so the camera then goes up, and then we can see him kind of climbing up as we can see the family asleep, and then we are zooming up so we can see the the kind of the the glass. Um, kind of glass ceiling sort of thing like I can't there's like a skylight or something and um, yeah. you can see him pass there and then the camera moves into the elevator in the in the house to look up at the panel that he's going to break into it's just it's like the stuff that just makes me yeah. fucking excited about cinema because it's just there are a million ways to do that and I'll tell you right now there's 999,999 ways to make it boring as fuck um, and Fincher got the one the one you know the diamond in the rough mm-hmm. way to make that shot just so animated and so exciting and it just feels like we're getting momentum and moving through when essentially all we're doing is following a guy like climb a house that's literally because everyone else is asleep um, yeah it's you could so yeah you could good. shoot this as exterior shots and get all the information you need mm-hmm. but it would not it, right i mean it's it, like it's just venture showing off as a director but it also is the movie it is it is you as the audience moving through this house constantly as shit is popping off left <laughs> and right yeah. and and uh i really appreciate the fact that like from jump Fincher just kind of grabs you as the audience and is like, let me show you some shit. Yeah. And and that's how the whole movie feels. Like you're constantly 
looking through his eye like even there's some slow motion shots later where it's just fincher being like no no just live in this for a second feel the tension of this yeah it's and it's so well done <laughs> yeah right it's and and so to get all of this he he created a 3d model of the house and mm -hmm. so uh, instead of traditional storyboards a lot of this movie was uh done in those kind of movie cinematics yes that are all computer generated so before they ever put together these shots he could model the shots in his computer house and be like oh okay we're gonna move here and then here and then up here and it was all you know it, like it, it was one of the first uh productions that i'm aware of at least that use computer modeling to that extent yeah and then started incorporating that into the actual editing of the film yeah and it's edited it's perfectly something. it really is yeah. seem, it's seamless when you watch it because trust me i was one of the things that i I'm aware, like we spoke about with Fight Club, some of the digital effects in Fight Club haven't really held up all that well. Um, but, you know, at the product of its time, there's certain things you can do and can't do practically, like blow up skyscrapers. Um, you're not allowed to do that, but I don't know if you knew that. You're, it's frowned upon. It's frowned. Eh. <laughs> Uh, it's more a guideline than a law <laughs> but like I, I was very conscious of I'm gonna like as soon as this camera work started happening I'm like right I'm gonna try and see if I can see the seams because I know where they are but I want to see if I can see them and you can't so like at all it's, it's insane how well this is crafted yeah. Whitaker breaks in um, is doing his walk around the house and what Yay, I, welcome to the movie Forrest Whitaker what I kind of love about this is his first indication that something's not right is a nightlight uh, it's a kid's nightlight in a bathroom and he's like oh shit yeah. um, and he sees the girl sleeping he sees uh, Jodie Foster sleeping works his way down lets in his partner uh, played by Jared Leto um, who has cornrows <laughs> junior in this movie who is just a rich shitball kid yeah the more we find out about him the more you just realize how much you dislike him but he is yeah. incredibly funny in this like like he is without trying he's just like the the sense of entitlement is what makes him so funny he's like he's such a he's he's a small fish in a big pond that thinks he's a shark and um and has no understanding of the concept of consequence. It, none at all. Absolutely none. And um, we are introduced to his masked friend uh, who shows up at a balaclava, the third man in this three-piece team, um, Raul, uh, who is at first a kind of background character. Is kind of you're like you do your thing. I'm just here. I'm, I'm I'm here to solve problems, so to speak. I've got a gun. Don't worry. You know what I mean. Raul will take care of things. Um, but becomes much more of an active player in this movie as it moves throughout. Um, and initially, the conversation is about listen. There are people in this house. They weren't supposed to be here, but they are here. Um, we need to to get into that panic room because you know that's where what we're looking for we're, we're kind of loosey-goosey with it but because we had that great exposition at the beginning we know it's money um you know you just know uh and we, we need to do something about this Forrest Whitaker is at this point ready to go because he is having some family trouble which they never really go into great detail until near the very end which I love as well it's just alluded to that he's having some issues 
with custody and that is mm-hmm. it that's all I need to know I don't need the you know like remember that time you were like I don't need that so we have yeah, that let me tell you a story that about, <laughs> about a little girl just like you yeah yeah there's none of that yeah. no I'd like the, the only hint we get towards that is you know when he's having to give the injection to Carson Stewart in the in the panic room later on and even then it's a concise conversation that makes sense within the confines of the scene so you know really like that and then we have this kind of splitting of the the, the kind of thought process um, we find out very quickly that Burnham played by um, Forrest Whitaker builds panic rooms so that's why he's there he's there because he has an understanding of their their use their capabilities etc um, we will find out as the movie goes on uh, a little more about Junior's background and how he knows so much about this property um, and specifically that there is a safe with money um, and Raul, even to the very end, there is so little that you get to know about him, and everything that you hear about him is through Junior's mouth that makes him feel like, why is he part of this? Like, like you know, like, you know what I mean? He's like, yeah, he's like, and it's clearly, it's clearly underestimation of the sort of ruthless individual that Raul is by Junior, which will come into effect later on, but well. And you're also calling into this world of like wealth and privilege, a a dude who is a bus driver, yes, who is not afraid to cross the line to get a little piece of mm-hmm. what all these people have, yes. And like Burnham's motivation is more, like you said, it, it's alluded to that this is more about him having money to do this legal custody battle, yeah. Uh, whereas uh, Raul is just there for the money. He's only there. That's his sole motivation, which is kind of similar to Junior. Junior's sole motivation yeah, is for the but, money, but as you'll find out later on, there's other ways he can get it. And he's not committed to it no. the way that Raul is. Yeah. It's also, yeah. it's just a lack of... It's that you, you get the feeling that this guy is a guy who's taken the easy way out many times before. Absolutely. He yeah. again. He has. He has no sense of consequence. It's. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna follow the path of least resistance to get what I want. And as soon as that becomes difficult, I'm going to abandon that. Yeah. And then try another thing. It, you know. May, do we want to just talk about while we're talking about these characters of just lay out what his deal is? Yeah. Well, it's because because I I love it because when you get a you get a bit of it before, and then you get like the full kind of unraveling later on but essentially he is the grandson of the very wealthy guy that owned the the building and he from what he says basically nursed him for the last two years of his life came to visit him one of the only family members that did purely because he wanted to know he wanted to be in the will at a higher position but he knew there was something in the house and the grandfather let him know that in the panic room there was a safe and uh, there was some money in that safe, which you're led to believe at the beginning of this movie is to the tune of about $3 million. Um, right, yeah, because there's the terrific line, you you bought a ski mask, it made a million dollars, yeah. your mother would be so proud. Yes. <laughs> he's such a dick. He, um, yeah, he's such a little prick in this movie. But yeah, so he's there to get the money, but, but again, if he doesn't 
follow through with this, he's still going to get some money. He yeah. just wants all of it. He just wants all. He wants all of it because the family don't know what he knows, which is where the money is. So but there's money in the damn stand. Yes. Um, I also thought that I was thinking about this. I I don't know how this works in the states, but I think in the UK, if you buy a property, everything on that property is yours. Like once I, once it's like once it's agreed out. I don't know. Like for example, if you found a safe, like are you found money buried in the walls? You are under any legal obligation to give it to the family that had it before. Yeah, I, I certainly don't know the legality of that. Uh, I think maybe if it's found with somebody's goods, if they're uh, if they're accounted for in a will or yeah, something, yeah, then maybe you know that would take precedence. But yeah, for the most part, like people find weird shit in old houses all the time here, mm -hmm. and it's just theirs. You know, like hey, here's a sack full of gold watches. Yeah, I don't know why, but. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. We'll never be late again. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I'm I'm rich and on time. <laughs> my two favorite things, Bo. Uh, yeah. But like, punctuality and yeah, and wealth, and, and wealth uh, combined together, you're practically yeah. a superhero. Um, yeah. So but so these jerks break in and realize that Jodie Foster and her kid are there, and decide like, well, we're just we're here. We're just gonna go through with this well it's a it's a little girl and a, a little woman and three criminals like what well, yeah. is, is the home alone thing because home alone does go through it can't not go through your brain in this movie the fact that at one point like even uh, there's an in joke to home alone in here in this movie which i kind of love when forrest whitaker starts referring to raul as joe pesci um yeah and what like, yeah, that's like true. so like there's there's a nod to it which you know because there is that there is that element kind of here but obviously not in a, a playful way <laughs> so much more fucking sinister life and death sort of way but it's like you know it's 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 two it's two women and three guys what's the worst that can happen here and of course very 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 early on um, because the movie's called Panic Room and Duncan should have remembered that's why it's called Panic Room um, and not that characters run about the house all the time and then eventually in the Panic Room at the end uh, no like Jodie Foster uh, goes up for a pee and as, or as she goes back she notices on the on the, the monitors that she has in the, in the Panic Room which are cameras positioned all around the house she notices that there's some guys in the house and at first, I love the, the, the... She's fucking such a good actress. She's such a good actress. The kind of look in her face at first where she's like, well, I've had a few glasses of wine and this is really late. Is the, am I seeing what I'm seeing? And it's not until uh, Jared Leto kicks the, the basketball and it bimsies right. and, and she actually hears the noise. Yeah, it's so good. When she sees the, the ball bounce and hears it and she's yeah. like, fuck, They're like people have broken into my house. Yeah. So she is upstairs uh, to wake our daughter up, uh, and Sarah. I love once again. Love this as well. Sarah doesn't wake up uh, at first, so she fucking throws a bottle of Evie on in her face. <laughs> She's like, wake up, well, little you bitch! Gotta, right, you gotta move. You know, like I can't, I can't wake you up gentle here. We gotta get our asses in the panic room. So yeah, so they like using the the elevator and doing a bit of trickery. They end up in the panic room with the panic room closed. Once again, this is ha this happens within the first half an hour of this movie. So we have an hour and twenty minutes, which is you know uh, for for most thrillers is about the standard length of a yeah, an average thriller. Of we need to get into that room, 
and they need to survive in that room. It's literally the uh-huh. two side the two sides of things. And all the all the stuff that they set up early in this movie about well this panic room has a phone line which is direct to the police. It's separate from the other ones and that you know that you know Meg hasn't set things up with that phone line. So that doesn't work. Uh you know the the daughter has uh she's she's diabetic yeah. And I'm sure had they thought they were ever going to have to use this room, they would have put candy bars or something in there just in case they ever had to use it. Um, or like a spare like set of insulin or what, something to allow them to not have to rely on these bits and bobs. But once again, they don't have it. The mobile phone is outside the room when they lock themselves in it. So they can't use it. But once again, when they do, because it's false hope for the audience, well, she just gets to the mobile, they'll be fine. And the movie likes to fuck around with that, which I really enjoy. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's her setup, And we get the, you know, they need to get in. Um, we have a intercom system, which Meg uses basically to tell them that they have to get to the house. And, you know, uh, I phoned the police. Uh, <laughs> well, she's going to say fuck off. And a bit, but like, phoned the police. And I love how... They're just like, well, no, she's lying. Like <laughs> she, she is lying. Um, and it's a right, gamble. Yeah, they Burnham, yeah. yeah, Burnham says right away, like, hey, to get that phone line hooked up, she would have to go through my company. Yeah. And I know for sure we did not get that order in. Yeah. So like, so, so they know yeah. something that she doesn't know. Uh, which was it's, it's, it's a great game of cat and mouse because there are certain points here where the you know the the thieves clearly. <laughs> The thieves have the upper hand, ball. Um, they clearly have the upper hand, um, and then it swings. <laughs> it swings towards, uh, you know, Meg, who like starts to gain the upper hand only by being forced to think practically. Um, and you know, it's, it's a great cat and mouse game. They need to get in. They need to stay safe. Uh, what they don't understand is that in the panic room there is a safe, and that's all they're really interested in. But there's a loose cannon here, and that loose cannon is a certain loose cannon called Raul, um, <laughs> who is like, no one lives. Like, if, if I've been caught on camera, even with this mask, no one fucking lives. Everyone must die. We need to get the money and get out of here. No witnesses. Scorched earth. And understandably, Forrest Whitaker ain't game for that. And neither is Jared Leto for the most part. He's just kind of like, well, you know, I don't really want to have to do this. And their first gambit which to me is one of these things which I, I kind of love in this movie. So the first gambit is that we'll intimidate them with the the signs, which doesn't work because they, they literally get told to get the fuck out of the house. Um, yeah. And then the second gambit is like, <laughs> is Junior and Raul trying to break in from the bottom? And uh, you've got Forrest Whitaker coming in and going, what the fuck are you doing? They're like, we're going to smash through here, things like that. Yeah, but once you get through that ceiling and through the, like, two me- two metres of concrete or whatever, two inches of concrete, you're then stuck with steel, which you're not going to be able to get through. Like, I designed these. If they were so fucking easy that you could just knock out the bottom of them, they wouldn't really be useful, would they? And they're like, nope, nope, keep going. And then when we join them again, they're actually hitting off the steel. So they're clearly not listening to them at all. And they're like, no, we'll yeah. just keep going. Just keep going. Um, but Forrest Whitaker sees a, a propane canister. And he's like, ah, I've got an idea. So the idea is that they're, the, he finds the, the point for where the ventilation system works, drills a hole into it, and then puts a pipe connected to the propane tank. Um 
to start pumping the gas in as a way to but it's done at a low level and the reason it's done this way is we're going to gas them out um, and this is not quick enough for Raul Bo who turns the fucking thing up for he's such an idiot of a character when I think about it um, and they keep saying to him listen if they die we don't get in we need to but like, like even Junior's like yeah I love he's like that oh yeah you totally had the same plan as I had I was about to say maybe we could gas them out really did right. you? Yeah. once Raul wordlessly understands what the plan is yeah. like as soon as he sees all the ingredients he's like oh okay and starts duct taping you know the garden hose to the propane tank but again like you said this is such a great cat and mouse moment because this is really where the chess game begins it's, where it's like the first move i'm going to pump propane into the panic room yeah and jody foster is like well i counter that <laughs> by climbing up to the ventilation where all this gas is pouring out and flicking my bick yeah which oh is going God. to result in a blue flame explosion. It's so good. It's, it's so good because, like, <laughs> you've got, <laughs> once again, the Home Alone comparison. Like, to me, is always when there's a scene in Home Alone where um, Joe Pesci, uh, they're trying to get up the loft and he pulls the handle and it's got a string and he keeps pulling the string and it's pulling a toolbox a massive toolbox down a flight of stairs and he can hear a noise so he's like let me put my ear right beside beside this door and you can see it from both sides we know what's coming Forrest Whitaker as soon as he hears the click for the first time he's like we need to turn the gas off but Junior is like let me just put my ear against this this wall here to see if I can can you guys kind of hear that and Raul doesn't have a fucking clue what's going on either and like you see he he kind of see a blue flame uh, carpets the, the ceiling of the panic room uh, but then shoots down the shaft blows a hole in the wall sets Junior on fire um, and you know sends a propane can about the room like it's a ping pong ball and yeah. like um, <laughs> it's so well that because like when you like <laughs> Junior's like standing there with his arm on, on fire going ah you know like trying to get the flame out and it's like if you had any inkling that he is maybe the most useless character out of the three this you know cements it 100% concrete this guy really out with he knows where the safe is which he's kind of already told the other guys anyway um, and maybe he knows the code, but let's be honest, they can still they'll find out life finds a way, bo. Um you know what I mean? Like so <laughs> um Junior but, uh uh finds a way. Junior finds a way. Um but yeah, so like this is the first gambit and it, it fails spectacularly for the for the you know the villains of this movie. But because it's so animated and stressful, this kicks off the beginning of uh, uh, the start of a diabetic coma for Sarah, um, who we're constantly monitoring. I love this as well. It's a little detail. It's like, right now, not only are we trying to keep ourselves safe, but we now need to look at this watch that's measuring our insulin levels because that's, you know, that's now another level of something that we're adding into the the, the, the mania of this thriller. And it's positioned and comes into effect right at the right time. When you're starting mm-hmm. to be like, right, well, if they can't get in, and this room's impregnable, then 
Is this much of a thriller? All oh, right, she'll die if she doesn't get her medication. I'm back on board. Um, and it, it lands at exactly the right time for the audience. So I, I kind of love that. Yeah, and it, sh- it we get a couple of moments with them in the panic room of them being more proactive. Like they, they have a flashlight and they find a vent mm-hmm. and, and try to signal somebody across the street that... <laughs> you know results in the the person across the street very rear window by the way but yes. this whole sequence where they just you know lowered the blinds and um it, and i think the next bit the guy the guy that they flash by the way is the writer of the uh, seven oh no kidding yeah it's uh, andrew walker andrew walker yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that's uh, oh wow that's that's fincher having fun um which i kind of love the- Oh, sure. Like, this movie feels like he was really having a good time mm-hmm. with manipulating the audience uh, yeah. <laughs> like this. But uh, And I think the, is, the next bit's the phone, right? Yeah, so what we get is we get some, we get some initial arguments um, because Raul wants to speak to Junior in private. They go downstairs and basically it's like, listen, you promised me 100 grand to do this job. Um, this is way beyond it was supposed to be a simple you know snatch and grab um, that's not what we're doing now so I want I want a third and this is your line you know you, you bought a ski mask and made a million uh, your mother would be so proud um, they're having mm. that argument meanwhile like Jodie Foster has worked out that our mobile phone is just outside and if they can get to it and of course eventually Burnham's going to get dragged into this argument which gives them the window for her to run out the panic room, grab the phone, run back in, and they close the door just before the thieves can get in again, and then the thieves are panicking to find out what she grabbed. They work at some mobile phone, and Whitaker's like, <laughs> uh, there's no danger here. At least panic rooms are designed not to be able to be used by people with mobile phones inside them. It's just it's the steel that's used. You won't get a reception. And of course, like the audience, that's the point they find it at the, you know, after all the build up and the adrenaline dump of grabbing that phone. Um, you're taking through that false hope, only to find out like it was never going to work anyway. Um, yeah. Which I kind of love. But then, then. What, if, if I may, yes? Duncan, before we get to the, the next step in this, <laughs> I know I kind of briefly mentioned this before, but that sequence, from the moment it goes into slow motion, mm-hmm with her reaching for her phone and you see the lamp topple and yep. that's what alerts them is this lamp falls and and shatters the bulb shatters and in slow motion you see Forrest Whitaker look over his shoulder mm-hmm. like oh shit she's out yeah and then it's it, it is just these matching slow motion shots of Jodie Foster grabbing the phone running for the panic room our three villains running up the stairs and getting in the room. Like, I think Jared Leto gets there just as the door is shut. Just as it's shutting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, Oh, it's so good. Duncan. I love that scene. So, so much. It's, 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 that's what we're talking about. That clinical precision to, to the craft. It works. It works so well because it's, it's it's juxtaposing what should be, this is, this is the movement of this scene. You know, like we've been trapped in a room. The guys have been trapped in a like, like trapped outside the room, and this is like a. There's not a lot of movement here, 
and now we're getting the the action set piece, but the action set piece is in slow motion. So yeah. it's, it's once again, it's very, very, very smart. And and you don't hear any of the dialogue or anything because it doesn't matter. It's it like okay, matter, you yeah. kind of know what they're arguing about. All you need to know is that they're arguing and distracted. Yeah. And it's such a primal thing. Like there are a lot of moments in this movie that feel very primal to mm-hmm. me. And this is one of those like they're gonna get you. You know, just you just gotta get to say you know get to your safe room you know it's like playing tag where it's like oh i i can touch this tree and you can't tag me Mm -hmm. you know it's that kind of primal chase uh sort of vibe and it i it just oh it works so well for me i love it it's a it's a great shot and we now have the you know meg starting to think on her feet she's like well listen the phone line must run somewhere and that's still I mean, I don't think they've cut that, and I can connect it to the phone that we have in here that's disconnected, and then we have access to the outside. So she starts doing that, and you can see Burnham trying to work out what the noises are, and he's trying to piece things together, because he's he has the brains of the operation because he has the knowledge of how these rooms are set up, and he's trying to think what the next step might be if they've tried to get the phone, and the phone's not working, what, and then you see it realise over him they're trying to connect the phone to the, the main we need to cut the, the mains so yes junior hey when you, when i told you to cut the phone line did you did you go down to the basement and cut the main line or did you just yank the kitchen phone out of the wall and junior's like yeah, the fact that Burnham has to ask that question <laughs> right you know, and as know. soon as there's silence on Junior's end yeah. he's like god damn it and like bust ass down to the basement yeah. where With there is Ra- no Raul light. is stalking in the background which I kind of love Raul's like kind of like he, like he hears all the kind of moving around and all the rest, and his his instinct is grab the sledgehammer. Um, so oh, sure. like so he 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 works his way down there, and yeah, like Meg at first tries to phone the police. The police essentially put her on hold. She then, after Sarah says phone my dad, they phone um, Stephen Altman, um, but initially get Nicole Kidman on the phone. <laughs> Which you only get her voice, uh, yeah. and Nicole Kidman passes the phone to to Stephen, and she basically gets out. There's there's uh, there's three in the house or something along those lines, or the, the you know there's three downstairs, and then the phone gets cut because while <laughs> while uh, Burnham's delicately trying to make sure he cuts the right the right wire, Raoul takes a mallet to this fucking the the whole box. Uh, the fuse box destroys the phone line and gets the job done. Um, and you know we're back. We're back to square one. Sarah is trying to convince her mum that this is going to do nothing. Um, and like Meg's like, no, no, no. Like you, you do it. And she's like, no, no, no. She won't let her. Nicole Kidman uh, <laughs> won't let my dad. Like phone the police or do anything. Is you know it's, it's not going to happen. And that's this is going to pay off later on. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so at this point, we <laughs> a great kind of <laughs> we have the the moment where Jared Leto is basically looking for pharmaceuticals to take the pain away. Um, there isn't any that well, there's Nyquil, um, which yeah, I think, where's uh, the Percocet? Yeah, yeah. Like, they don't have any of that, uh, and he's picking these bits of kind of essentially melted uh, top or, or jumper out of his arm, and he's like that. You know what? 
fuck it, right? Like, I, I, like this was a bad idea. Uh, we took our shot, we took our swing, didn't work. Um, you know what? I'm just going to cut my losses and run. And you can see, like, like Burnham's like, you, like, after, I wanted to do this at the beginning and you told me to stay and now you're just, and you're going to be fine with this. He's like, listen, I'm going to go. I'll make an anonymous call tomorrow to the police uh, and to the lawyer. I'll let them know where the, the safe is. They'll find it. The money will be taken out there. It'll get split, right? Well, six ways for the adults. And then I'm in the next rung after, you know, tax um, for inheritance. You know, I'm going to come out 800,000, 900,000. And you get that kind of look between like Raul and Burnham where they're like, what? And yeah. then you get the, you get the, the, the kickback here, which like, explain, explain to the people out there, Bo, what Junior did wrong here. Uh, well, A, brought Raul in the first place. <laughs> Who the fuck is Raul, bro? <laughs> and B, uh, turns his back on him. It's just like, hey, man, I'm going to get an inheritance out of this anyway. I don't give a shit. And they're like, you're going to what? Yeah. And it's and the it, number which doesn't make sense because, bro, if it's going like, I'm bad at maths, right? But I know that 900,000 is 100,000 short of a million. And there's only supposed to be three million up there, and he's talking about being split six ways and then further ways and all the rest. I mean, that doesn't make sense, does it? Right. Yes. Because there's the three million uh, originally assumed. Then there's yeah. this number, and then there's the real number. Yeah. All of which are different. All of which are different. Yeah. As you as you work through this, so um, they're like you were you were. I love like I think Burnham's like line is what were you gonna do? Were you gonna go upstairs and like remove your larger cut without us seeing, and then give us the rest as if we're making it good from this? Uh, and Junior's like, listen, I've had enough. I'm gonna go. Turns his back to walk out the door, and bada boom, um, bada bing. Yep. Uh, he's got a gun. Yeah. Um, shoots him yep. in, shoots him in the back of the head uh, starts pulling him in shoots him again in the face and then goes to close the door uh, with Raul basically saying you don't know anything about me because that's where the line about you're, you're just a bus driver Raul um, and he gets shot for that uh, and he's about to close the door and there's an old man in glasses standing on the doorstep who gets fucked in the face with a gun <laughs> <laughs> yeah and which, uh, of course, is Jodie Foster's husband, as it happens. Mm-hmm. This is Stephen Altman, played by Patrick Bauchow. Um, And he is yet another dude who does not really do much to help the situation here. No, of course not. <laughs> he's, he's like that. They, they basically, when they find out who he is, they're like, did you phone the police? And he's like, no, I, you're, I, I would never phone the police. Um, but he is going to be used as the next... I love that because they talk about... <laughs> <laughs> they're like that he's like uh, Raul's got a gun against Burnham's head saying listen I'm going to give you a count of three to come up with another way to get us in there and he's like well there is no other way and he's like two uh, he's like well, I what, you know one he's like oh, I've, got, I've got an idea I think it might work and their idea is basically let's beat the shit out of Stephen Altman on front of the camera until they open the door but I think Burnham in his naivety thinks that they can fake the violence on him um, and Raul, Raul apparently doesn't know how to fake some violence because this ain't the WWE. He doesn't take like a fake steel chair to his back. He boots the ever-loving fuck out of him on camera. Um, yeah. And this obviously sets Sarah into a like a much quicker diabetic coma onslaught. Um, 
that we now have that clock is now ticking very fast now. Uh, she's already seen a murder. She's now seen her dad being roughed up, something rotten. And then we get Burnham's next idea, which is we're going to cover the we're going to cover up the cameras, and then we're going to fake look like we're we're moving a body out the room, and that way this might draw them out, which it does do. Yeah, absolutely. And because, again, her daughter is having a seizure mm -hmm. and Jodie Foster has to sneak past this body, like opens up the panic room, sneaks past this body that's passed out that uh, she believes is her husband. And um, she heads upstairs to her, her daughter's room where there's a little mini fridge with like juice and uh, the insulin shots in, uh, in there and gets that. And on her way back, realizes, oh, shit. Yeah. It was actually Dwight Yoakam who was in the bedroom. And now she and Forrest Whitaker are in in the bedroom with the open panic room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Raul has had to take off his balaclava at this point. <laughs> uh, revealing that it was Dwight Yoakam all along, Bo. Yeah. There's, man, a great Dwight Yoakam moment as Jodie Foster is kind of sneaking around, like it's one of those situations where she knows that they're waiting for her now. Mm -hmm. And they don't know that she knows that, but they know that she's out there. Yeah. And so Dwight Yoakam just goes, hey, lady, come on. Yeah. Come on out here. Let's get this over with. Yeah. And he kind of says that part to himself a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, he, there's no question he's just going to murder her as soon and as she's just her. on the other side of the wall which yeah. he doesn't know which i kind of yeah. love because it registers yeah like th this is this is now this is this is serious um yeah this is mortal again it's back to that primal thing this is life and death yes and it, and so basically she just goes feral mm -hmm. <laughs> and has the the kit the medicine kit uh with insulin and and so forth and the the needle in one hand busts into this door that she knows that dwight yokum is hiding behind to kind of send him sprawling mm -hmm. she starts to make for the panic room forrest whitaker is inside and it's like the fuck yeah and before she can get there dwight yokum fucking tackles her full body tackles yep. her <laughs> The kit goes flying. Ultimately, she gets the gun. Yeah, and <laughs> what happens to Dwight Yoakam? Dwight Yoakam runs back inside the panic room. Uh, what Jodie Foster does is she slings the medicine kit into the panic room before the door closes, mm -hmm. which closes on Dwight Yoakam's hand. Yeah. <laughs> and he just starts howling. And there's this whole negotiation of like, lady, you like Forrest Whitaker as Burnham is telling her like, drop the gun, put it on the floor. Well, she doesn't go know. Downstairs. She, doesn't, yeah, she doesn't know that she's got the gun, but he's having an argument with Raul, and they keep hitting intercom, and she keeps getting these broken, broken sentences of. She's got the gun. She's got the yeah. gun. And she's like, oh, I've got the gun. <laughs> I've got a gun. And yeah, <laughs> finds it later. Around. So now she's armed. Um, and they force her to go downstairs. 
but she takes the gun with her and yeah. there's a great moment where on the PA Force Whitaker is like, Hey, I told you to put the gun on the floor and you just see her like Mouth you don't hear it. <laughs> yeah, she mouths the words, Fuck you. <laughs> it's so good. And so they're able to open up the door long enough for Dwight Yoakum to pull his crushed hand out. <laughs> <laughs> and close the door and as soon as she hears it open jody foster takes off yeah and gets there like gun drawn but it closes too fast and then maybe my favorite jody foster in the mo uh, moment in the movie mm -hmm. is when she just goes to this door and starts starts clawing at it and screaming like a fucking animal yeah she, she does a lot of pacing backwards and forwards as well which is it's just a fucking great performance <laughs> like I yeah. mean I, I mean I would love to see Nicole Kidman in this but I don't know if she brings the frantic energy that Jodie Foster does you know what I mean it's just, yeah, I mean she is pure like rage and emotion it is just you this door is standing between me and my sick child mm -hmm. and I'm gonna I'm gonna rip apart anything between me and that yeah yeah and it, oh man it's just it's one of my favorite Jodie Foster performances quite frankly yeah she's she's great in this but we're now pivoting to the next thing which is basically you know Meg is kind of pleading with Burnham that our daughter needs you know needs to get this insulin in her um and while that's happening she decides to do the old uh, the home alone thing so she's not going to rig the, the house up in such a way that you know she goes I love this line as well she starts going around the house with, a with the big mallet sledgehammer thing and starts destroying all the cameras and Raul turns around to Burnham and says why the fuck did we not do that um, yeah. it's just a great line it's just like I, I, admitting a lot of this could have just been resolved had we just removed the fucking cameras it feels so obvious but why didn't we do that um right i mean it's the heat of the moment everybody's mm -hmm. reacting and yeah it's it, right but it also shows like they're all human yes. they're all making good and bad decisions yes. at times yes but but yeah there's this great jodie foster sequence where she is just like you know what the tables have turned motherfuckers <laughs> and goes through it like knocks out all the cameras knocks out some of the lights gets uh glass or uh bust a mirror so yeah. that there's glass all so over she the can hear them if they're if they're walking through a room goes down to her husband um who's got a broken arm but basically gets his arm like propped up in a position with a light underneath it with a gun essentially taped his hand that you know when they come downstairs yeah. you will shoot them um and there's so a great a great line here where he says you know mag mag just do whatever they say yeah and she says we can't do that and, she, and he's like why why can't we just let them take our daughter and he <laughs> and she's like because it's gonna come to that steven yeah yeah and oh again it's just her like recognizing like the shit has gone down mm -hmm. there is no more fight we are going to kill them if they try to take our daughter out of this house yeah Meanwhile, as they're trapped in there, the police show up because turns out Stephen Altman oh. actually did phone the fucking police and lied about it. Um, Man, this fucking scene, dude. Yeah, like so. Basically, they show up. So you've got the you've got the view inside the house of uh, inside the panic room of them thinking that she's called the cops. And uh, Dwight Yoakam says. Oh man, she just killed her kid. That's literal in front of the kid as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and a uh, like so so Meg goes out to speak to the cops, and this is uh, Paul Schultz and Mel Rodriguez. 
uh, to, to police officers. The cop in the background who does not want any part of this. He literally does not want to be there. It's fucking raining. It's late. This sounds like a domestic call, and he's got donuts to eat. Bo, I'm with this guy, right? <laughs> like, yeah. But, I, but the main cop is is like, Miss, can we come in and take a look around? She's like, Uh, no, you can't come in and take a look around. It's late, and I'm drunk or something. Yeah. <laughs> and and there, as he's kind of pressing, she's like, you know. I I know that you got this call from my ex-husband, but we're going through a divorce right now. And he says, there are three. Yeah. And she's like, what the fuck did you say? Yeah. And he's like, there are three. He said, you said there are three, and then the phone uh, went dead. What What's the end of that sentence? Mm-hmm. And Jodie Foster says, look, it's late. I've been drinking. It's our first night in a new house. And I called him and I was going to say, there are three things that I'll do for you if you come over right now and get in bed with me. And the asshole cop in the back goes, is that enough for you? You want to tell her, you want her to tell you what the three things are? <laughs> such a dick. <laughs> but, but, but the main cop follows it up. It's so, it's so good. He's like, ma'am, you know, if there's, anything that you can't say to me mm-hmm. but if you want to give me some kind of signal to let me know that something's off when i wink at you stand on your foot <laughs> yeah <laughs> hello mr anderson um yeah but he says that's something you could do yeah and there's this really tense moment where you just see Jodie Foster staring at him yeah, as the blinking, gears are like, turning. Like, absolutely determined not to fucking blink, Bo. Um, yeah, of just like, fuck, like, I, I don't know what the right thing is to yeah. do, but something has to be done. Yeah. And so she says, boy, they sure train you guys, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, fuck. I love this scene so much. And yeah, and then you know finally off they go kind yeah. of slowly but it's her saying like hey we're cool the cops are not involved this yeah. is still between us yeah which gives the green light to burnham to start getting through this safe which he manages to um and then produces some bonds bank bonds um, bearer bonds yeah yeah uh the the what was in nakatomi plaza as well as that happens <laughs> um but it it turns out it's 22 yeah. million dollars which is more than the 12 bonds. that they estimated when they killed junior <laughs> uh-huh so it's 22 so that's a, that's a good score and now we're building up to essentially the last stand. They're out of the panic room. They're working their way through the house, which is now being kind of booby-trapped a little bit. And I love this. They come downstairs, like, like Jodie Foster's hiding in the lift, right? And they come downstairs and um, the light comes on and it's, it's Stephen sitting there with a gun. And he's basically like, you need to let my daughter go. You need to let my daughter go. And he's like, listen, we're all cool. We're going to let her, you let your daughter go. And Raul's not looking like he's too cool with that. And then in the background, we see the lift door open. And Jodie Foster standing there with that fucking hammer. <laughs> Goes after Dwight Yoakam with this fucking sledgehammer. Like gives Kristen Stewart the nod, like, yep. get down. I'm about to swing this motherfucker. <laughs> And hits him square in the chest. He goes over the railing and lands as a crumpled mess, still alive, um, on the stairs below. And Forrest Whitaker 
does a runner, as you would imagine. Yeah, he, he, he's like, oh. he bolts, which is what he's wanted to do for a while, only now he's got $22 million yeah, he's, in he's, his jack. Yeah, he's read the room. He knows what's happening here. And he runs out, and uh, Raul manages to make it back up the stairs. There's no bullets left, and Raul starts to go to town, beating the... the first, he, he knocks over um, Stephen... Uh, and the gun falls away to the side. Then he, you know, when it looks like uh, Meg's going to start moving, Meg gets like hit. Uh, then when it looks like Sarah, she's got her uh, insulin injections, she starts stabbing them, repeating the back. He fucking socks her square in the mouth and sends Dude. her. It's, it's such a brutal looking punch, by the way. It it looks square up like Dwight Yoakam punches Kirsten Stewart in the fucking face yes, in this movie. It there really is. does. Uh, had I not known better, I would have thought that Kirsten Stewart got knocked the fuck out, right? <laughs> yeah. It, and worth noting, Dwight Yoakam looks demonic at this point. Yeah, he he's pale, <laughs> dark-eyed, hair-crazy, bloody, just... Yeah. He's gone full <laughs> Jack Torrance. And he decides that he's going to crush... Meg's face and we can hear Sarah screaming and of course this is loud enough for Burnham to hear it and then Burnham decides he's going to do the right thing Bo um, and he comes back and, and just when it looks like Meg is going to get her face crushed uh, Burnham lifts up the gun and shoots uh, Raoul in the head killing him just as the police start to break down the door Burnham makes a run for it um, but it's caught out the back by a SWAT squad um, and because this is the sort of movie that has to do this a la once again like die hard um, we have to have the money flowing away in the wind at the end <laughs> like, like, like yeah. it's all for fucking naught um, it's like the cell phone all over again it's like that. Yeah. none of that was the point like yes. you know crime um, does not pay in this movie as does not pay in this movie um, and yeah, like we then feed out, um, and then we feed back in with once again Meg and Sarah sitting on a park bench, um, closer I would say maybe as a mother and daughter, even though they were very close, kind of looking at new places to live and reading out the the different things. And obviously, I, I love how like at this time Meg's like, "Do we need all this space? Do you need all this space? <laughs> like we don't need all this space." And I thought you wanted to live on this side, and now she wants to live on the other side of New York because the bad thing happened on the west side and we had this kind of heartwarming conversation about them about moving on with their lives um as the camera pulls out and fades to black yeah there to reinforce that kind of final shot too there's a scene at when the all the police show up at the very end of the movie mm -hmm. where uh kristen stewart goes to her father yeah and is kind of comforting him because he's all fucked up and bloody. <laughs> and then she looks at her mother like, oh, you, you've you been through some shit too. Mm -hmm. And Jodie Foster's like, no, no, it's okay. Be with him. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. And and that's the moment where you're like, oh, yeah, she is completely empowered now. Like, yeah. she's <laughs> she has been through a thing that will now make her a much stronger person and has no need of her husband or mm -hmm. any of that shit. She's going to be fine. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a good it's a strong ending it's a strong ending I also like the fact that yeah, yeah look, I, I like the fact that we don't get any details about what happens to Forrest Whitaker because guess what Bo I can imagine what that is so yeah it's unfortunate like the thing about for 
another production note, Duncan. Mm. Uh, there was a push to after test audiences saw this movie, people were like, "I don't want him to go to jail." Yeah, like he was the the good guy, and so they looked at what it would cost to like rebuild the set and reshoot it. Yeah, and it was just prohibitively expensive. So what they did instead was not just that, but they go. They went back and re-edited some scenes with him uh, right. to try to make him less likable, <laughs> so that you, when he got arrested, you were more okay with it. Yeah, but I don't know how successful they were because when he gets arrested, I'm like, oh, that's a real bummer. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, you know, he takes it, it's the scene with the glass, uh, the the mirror on the floor, where as they're at the end of the movie when he and Dwight Yoakam and Kristen Seward are, are leaving the panic room mm-hmm. and they come across the broken mirror. He picks her up. He's yeah. like, Oh, watch the floor. You know, yeah. there's broken, broken glass there. And but you can, uh, I think I th- to me, it's more honest though. Cause you can be genuinely a nice guy and still be a fucking criminal. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, you know yeah. I mean? And he, he also has that thing where he says like, you know, sometimes, Things just don't work out like you planned. Yes. And and he is the living embodiment of that, of like, hey, we have such a good plan to seamlessly steal this money. And this plan just continues to unravel and unravel and escalate until he sh- it's just out of like he tries to leave as soon as Dwight Yoakam shoots Junior. Yeah. But gets caught at the door by Raul, who's like, no, no, no get away from that door close that door lock mm-hmm. it and get away from it mm-hmm. so like he tried to take off early oh he tried and, to take off right at the start like as soon as yeah. he, he was like that i don't want any part of this <laughs> yeah but I, I also don't want like i don't need jodie foster and him to be friends or anything at no the end of this like I, I, I don't want to see her standing up at, in court saying like that if it wasn't for the brave actions of mr burnham my family you know i would be you know, i don't want that right because the counter is if not for the actions of mr burnham we never would have been in this situation to begin with a hundred percent a hundred percent you know so he's he's certainly responsible and and comes to uh i think the proper end yeah where you know he gets nothing he, he you know crime doesn't pay as we said and uh but he's such a great character in this movie like he's uh he, he's kind of uh, the heart of this movie in a lot of ways of the dude who's just just trying to get by just trying to do the right thing man and Mm -hmm. just uh keeps fucking it up i like him (laughs) so much in this movie um Um, so one last thing that i want to say is and we haven't really touched it um long time cronenberg collaborator howard shore does the score for this movie and it's a great score it's a proper thriller score you know what i mean yeah it's very classically leaning in towards that i think it works really well at this time period the the danger to be a little bit kind of electronic and experimental in your soundtrack is is prevalent like a lot of a lot of movies from this time have the, the i mean see fight club jesus oh yeah yeah and the fact that we were it's a different sort of movie we're going to lean back on a more traditional style of score by a, a guy who's like literally known for some of the best scores um in movies ever uh, i think i think aids this overall um bringing it in i i will tell you boy you've probably gathered this uh this movie shot right up for me um i i've really enjoyed this really really enjoyed this is this is a testament to why i think david fincher is is a great director because he's he's 
We've said it before, he's tackling uh, a genre which is very unforgiving. He is he is being very clever with what he does with the camera work and the way the story unfolds. Um, and the cast nail it. Once again, he, he seems to land great casts in his movies. Uh, and it works together. It's, it's a great thriller. Um, front to back, I had a ball watching this one. I appreciate the the speed of it. It's, it realistically shouldn't work at the length that it does and it actually feels when it finishes like you could have shoved another 10 minutes on and I would have been fine with it um, so yeah, yeah I, I, I one really more enjoyed. crackpot scheme on, on the part of Burnham at all yeah, I would have been fine to see like yeah. you got another propane tank in you yeah. let's try it <laughs> I, would have, I would have totally went with it so yeah I, I thoroughly enjoyed this uh, any closing words on this before I ask you our final question um, I mean, beyond Panic Room Sun. Uh, <laughs> this is a Panic I, Room Sun. I will give you that. It, I mean, it truly is one of those movies that I think functions on every level. And I, I, I go back to degree of difficulty. It's hard to make one of these movies compelling, yeah. especially at an almost two hour length. Mm -hmm. And everything about it is great. The script is nice and tight and very funny at times. Uh, it's got great performances. Even somebody like Dwight Yoakam that you don't really expect a great performance out of yeah. is really menacing in this. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, that whole, <laughs> you know, uh, man, she just killed her own kid. Yeah. The, it's so chilling when he says that. I love it. Um, you know, obviously cinematography, the direction, I mean, the the score, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. it's everything works in concert perfectly. It's one of those Fincher movies that aims kind of low philosophically, yeah. I would suppose, but it, it executes exactly what it wants to. Yeah. And I mean, it's just a perfect example of this kind of movie. It's a... a a, an astounding feat to me every time i watch it i think i like it a little more well and you're you're not you're not wrong when you talk about aiming low estimated budget 48 million opening weekend alone 30 million gross for canada and usa a shade under 100 million and gross worldwide a shade under 200 million so yeah <laughs> yeah that's real modest but you know it's it's a movie that is for people who like movies that's it it's, it's not as it's, it's, if anything this is the sort of movie that isn't pigeonholed in such a way where you know like fight club is almost by its very nature destined to be a cult movie seven was almost by its very definition destined to be a cult movie that have attracted a larger interest in audiences that went on. To me, Panic Room is the game the way the game should have been. One that appeals yeah. to a larger audience, but it's just Fincher like flexing every talent muscle that he has. It's almost as if he did that that movie experience didn't work out the way he wanted and he channeled that into Panic Room and managed to get all the bits that didn't work in the game correctly to work perfect in Panic Room. It's his make good on the game. I think it He's is. He's like, oh, sorry about that one. Here, here's a real thriller. Because well, the, ga the game is, like, like we've said it before, that's his, that's his first proper swing at a thriller that isn't a horror thriller, right? And um, something that's a bit more conventional with people that are a bit more grounded to an extent. And it, it doesn't quite tie together and if, if anything he, he strips a lot of that out single set location swings back in with Panic Room and it works 
Um, you know, it really, 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 really works. The small attentions to detail in this movie are, are incredible. Even down to, and it's a fact that's mentioned in here, it's something I noticed when I watched it, those opening credits where you have those block letters about the walls, you have shadows and reflections of those block letters for the cast and crew and other buildings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, I like, think they I, I said just... it took a year to do that. It's <laughs> Fincher though. Time is a flat yeah. circle, but... <laughs> Uh, one of the the other fun production notes was how many times uh, that scene where Dwight Yoakam tackles Jodie Foster <laughs> that he had them do that a bunch. Oh shit! And that's pretty fun. You don't want to be physical in a Fincher movie because that just spells pain and soreness for a couple of weeks after. Yeah. Well, the whole deal was like you know because of the shot, the medicine bag lands right in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. So both of those things had to be right. The tackle had to be right and the throw had to be right. And it it, it had to look like it wasn't a throw. Yes. And so they did it a number of times, apparently. And it sounds like that would be terrible. Yeah, that's a miserable day on set. You, you know that's a miserable day on set. But you also know that Jodie Foster, fucking consummate professional, would have done it without blinking. Um, yeah, and Dwight Yoke, I'm probably just happy to be there. What do you want me to do? Tackle Miss Foster? <laughs> happy to do it, sir. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. As everyone knows, what we do on Opera Omnia at the end is we basically say, up to the point of watching this movie, what one is the best Fincher movie in our opinion? Now, currently, we're both still side by side in our agreements that Seven is the best movie that Fincher has made. Bo, after this time around with Panic Room, has your position changed? Is Seven still the better movie, or has Panic Room won out for you? Oh, man, that's tough, Duncan. Welcome to the show, Bo. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think it's still Seven. I think Seven is really, really special. Not that Panic Room isn't, um, but it's tempting, man. Like, they're both... They're so different, and I think Seven appeals to me a little more because of how dark and grim it yeah. is. Of uh, and and it's again loaded with great performances and yada yada yada. All the stuff we said about Seven before. Um, so I think that is still true. Although Panic Room is a real run for the money for me. Yeah, I'm I'm coming in with you as well. Um, Seven to me, I mean, it, it leans more into the sort of stuff that I really enjoy. It's maybe arguably one of the best serial killer movies ever made um, and it's it's, it, it's uh, kind of penchant for, for nihilism is, is right up my alley uh, but I will say this Panic Room has come up hugely in my estimations uh, for, for Fincher ones I would actually probably hold this about the same level as Fight Club now um, which I mean is nothing to be sniffed at even though those no. two movies are completely different I hold Fight Club in quite high regard, so the fact that that's right up there, I mean, speaks volumes from it. And that's only on this rewatch. There is nothing to say somewhere down the line, like a year from now, I watch it again, and I'm like, yeah, this is, you know, I, I would much rather watch this than Fight, Fight Club any day of the week. So it could happen. Now, Bo, this is not where things, maybe for certain people that were imagining where we were going to be at the end of five, but I think we all kind of know where we're going to land at the end of the next episode. Uh, so, like, we're going to be back in one month's time. We're going to be talking about Zodiac. The you remember when we were just talking about how we could do with more Fincher in our uh, in our movies. The next movie we're going to talk about is two hours and forty minutes in length. Um, it is Fincher's take on the Robert Graysmith book, uh, screenplay done by James Vanderbilt. 
it's Zodiac from 2007 and talking about all-star casts Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr, Mark Ruffalo, Brian Cox uh, I mean it's just it's got a, a, a kind of who's who of, of, of great names Elias Coteus oh Still my beating heart. Uh, uh, so, I just want to listen to Hurdy Gurdy Man over and over. Which we will do on the wrap tip. There's no, there's no doubt that will happen 100%. But that's where we're going next month. Very much looking forward to it. We said right at the very start that we both agreed, without even running through these movies, that Zodiac was our favourite Fincher movie. We will see... Um, if one of us backs out, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and changes our mind on the run-up. Um, and it's it's coming out in one month's time before you get a total loving with me and Bo talking about Zodiac. Before you go though, Bo, you do a ton of interesting stuff. Where can people check out your works? Uh, you can find uh, the stuff I do at legionpodcasts.com uh, where you can find shows like Pick 6 Movies where my friend Chad and I uh, pick six movies around a central theme and uh, release a bi-weekly show. Uh, where we give you a little bit of movie history as well as goof on the movie for a bit. Uh, spoilers, we do mostly bad movies. Um, <laughs> well, I, yeah, mostly bad movies, but you've just released an episode on Grizzly. Which, yes, is undeniable. This season and is And you're all doing about, Orca as well, so... Yes. Uh, spoilers, Duncan, Jesus. <laughs> um, but we are uh, doing a season called It's Like Jaws that is nothing but movies that are like Jaws, <laughs> but have a different animal or whatever in them. So uh, yeah, we're, uh, we just released Grizzly. The next episode is Alligator, oh, um, which is a terrific movie as mm -hmm. well. Uh, so yeah, a lot of the movies we're doing this season are surprisingly good. Yeah. And, uh, but we also last season were doing things like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, yeah. which is a cinematic travesty. Yeah. Um, from Justin to Kelly, that American Idol movie that is, <sighs> I dare you to watch, Duncan. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so we do that. And then there's Hero Hero Go Show, which is currently doing a run on the One Miss Call movies. Mm -hmm. uh, we are just, uh, as of tomorrow, uh, as we're recording this, the episode on One Miss Call 2 will be released. Yeah, Derek was recording with me last night and was very excited for me to hear this episode, so... It, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And then the next episode will be on the uh, television series. Did you that manage? Aired in oh, Japan. did you manage to get your hands on it? I got it. Yeah, and it's <laughs> little preview, Duncan. A delight. <laughs> uh, it's really wonderful. The translation is just bad enough to be the best. Uh, it's wonderful. And, and the show's kind of nutty and weird, too, and I really like it. Uh, so that, we're doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, if you go to youtube.com forward slash Legion Podcast, uh, you'll get a bunch of video stuff. Uh, there are other shows on Legion. Uh, yeah, yeah, just go to the website or uh, subscribe to Legion Podcasts uh, as a whole on the uh, podcast app of your choice, and you'll get all of that stuff and a bunch more stuff that ain't got nothing to do with me other than i i give it the thumbs up i tell you <laughs> hey this is a good show bo is the man from del monte um yeah. <laughs> i don't know does that translate hey, does that translate well i i have no idea what the man from del monte is i i assume it is uh some sort of uh don quixote style character no the man from De the man from del monte i thought this is me showing my horrible Britishness um, like Del Monte is a brand over here of um, like fresh fruit drinks and like tinned fruit 
like tin pineapple that sort of thing um, uh-huh. and the there used to be an ad campaign in the UK uh, where it would be some exotic location and people would be picking pineapples or coconuts or fucking bananas and then they'd be bringing them across and the man from Del Monte looks like Richard Attenborough from uh, <laughs> from Jurassic Park in a, like uh-huh. a white linen suit with a hat on and all the rest and you take a slice of that mango and sit and eat it and everyone would look at him and then he put his thumbs up and everyone would be like, yay, slave labour to pick this fruit for Del Monte. And the tagline was, the man from Del Monte, he says yes. That sounds vaguely familiar. We might have had a similar, if not the same, uh, oh, kind of advertisement. Because we have the, the same Del Monte yeah. uh, fruits and stuff. So, yes. Uh, and in addition, Duncan, um, I, you're not necessarily a, a fan. Ooh. But we have Duncan and Bo Come Correct over there, yes. which is the show. Time. Yeah, uh, it's the show you and I do currently looking at Slasher Season 2, which, uh, Duncan, I don't know if you've watched Episode 2 yet, but... I have I'm, not. You're, you're I'm, smiling, though. <laughs> I'm very excited for that to happen. <laughs> oh, God, it'll never end. Uh, right. <laughs> well, not for another two seasons, at least. Oh, uh, Oh, the, the trauma, the trauma. Uh, right, thanks very much to my guest, Bo Ransdell, for joining me. We are going to be back in one month's time with the next episode of Opera Omnia. Until then, take care of yourselves, and we'll speak to you next time. Panic room, son! Panic room, son!